the verse of scripture that you have before you on the overhead is a central theme and it really gives us a way of understanding why the nation of Israel is struggling the way they are. And friends, they are struggling. The world hates them. All over the world, and I just want to reiterate just a few things about the things that are going on today or yesterday. In New York City, there were protesters that tried to storm one of the most important buildings in New York City that has to do with transportation. They were trying to kick the doors down. But they also were tearing down not just Israeli flags, but American flags, stomping them under their feet, burning them. You know, one of the things that I was reminded of as Barbara was playing this morning, a couple of songs that she played were, again, patriotic songs, songs that remind us of where we have been as a nation. Songs that are grateful to the God who has blessed us and given us this great prosperity that we all enjoy. Songs that emphasize the fact that we are a nation under that God. That's changing. And part of the reason it's changing is because of the mindset of so many people in the world today, in this nation today, that are not only against Israel, but they're against God. They're against Christianity. They're against the Bible and the expectations of the Bible for all men, all women, all nations to worship Him in spirit and in truth. They're against the idea that we should be obeying His commandments, redefining the word sin, or eliminating it altogether. You all know what's going on in our nation, and it's getting worse by the day. So, yes, Israel has been judged because of their hard-heartedness, their stiff-necked people. God told them that they were a stiff-necked people in the book of Exodus, all the way back in the beginning of their existence as a nation. God recognized that that's what they were and are. They still are today a stiff-necked people. But that does not mean God has forsaken them. That does not mean that God is so angry with them that He's not going to do anything for them any longer. He is with His people. They are indeed His people. He has planted them in His land. They are there because God has made it so. So whatever happens in the world around us, whatever happens in this nation, be mindful of the fact that God is not through with His people Israel. And yes, we may end up being persecuted as believers. Are we willing to stand? Are we willing to trust the Lord that He will carry us through whatever troubles we may have to deal with? As we read this portion in the chapter 7 of the book of Acts today, let us be mindful of the fact that there was, in this case, one individual who was not, again, an apostle. He was just like you and me, a servant, willing to be used by God, and he was used mightily. And in this, this chapter 7, we find Stephen having been accused by false accusations of blaspheming the law, Moses, the temple, 
Stephen embarked on a defense before that 71-member group of leaders known as the Sanhedrin. It was a legal proceeding. He was being tried for his offenses. And in that time, anyone who was charged with any offense was given the opportunity to speak on his own behalf. And that's what Stephen is doing. However, he doesn't just speak on his own behalf. He wants them to know that the reason he's standing before him is in this verse that you have before you. They were a stiff-necked people. Their hearts had been hardened. He says, Oh, you uncircumcised of heart and of ears. You're just like the people before you. You haven't changed as a nation. You're still the same. You haven't learned from all those examples that were given to us in the book of Exodus, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Judges, the book of Joshua, the book of Numbers, all of those prophetic statements that were made by the prophets with regard to the people of Israel. They were just completely oblivious to all of what God was trying to speak to them through those prophecies, through those statements, through those commands, through those historic events that had taken place as a nation. In Jesus' day, those leaders thought themselves to be right with God. They thought themselves that because they were obedient to the letter of the law, that they were doing exactly as God intended for them to do. And so if anybody ever comes along and rocks their boat, instead of listening to somebody else talk about maybe God is speaking this way instead of the way you have interpreted it, as Jesus had done, You'd think that they perhaps would at least listen, but they did not. Pride enters into this equation, and they were prideful. They would not turn at the statements that some young man that doesn't really have an education, they didn't really believe that he was qualified to teach them, and yet that's what he was doing. In the first part of chapter 7, he had begun all the way back in their history with a man known as Abram, who was not a Jew, but he was the founder of their faith. Remember, he was a Chaldean. He was a man who lived in the area of the Euphrates River, in the land of Ur at the time, many, many years before that day that Stephen was proclaiming these things. And he tells us that Abram was called by God out of his life of idolatry because he was an idolater, serving the gods of that region where he lived. But God spoke to him and he listened and he obeyed the command of God to go into a different place. And I don't know about you, but when I read that story of Abram, and his willingness to just say, Oh, Sarai, guess what? We're heading west. Oh, where are we going? I don't know. But God has spoken. What God? Well, the God of creation. How do you know? I just know. I believe it to be so. I really am ready to follow this God who has spoken to me. I believe what He has spoken. In other words, Abraham believe God, and it tells us very clearly that because he believed, God accounted it to him as righteousness. 
And so he left, not exactly sure where he was heading, except he was going west. Because God had said, to the land that I will show you. It wasn't until he got there. And Abraham became Abraham instead of Abram, because God changed his name to Abraham, because he was to be a father of a multitude. Now, wait a minute. Abraham says, Sarai, aren't we a little old for that? Abraham left the land of Ur at the age of 75. God had given him the promise of having a son for the very first time at the age of 90. Abraham believed God. Didn't know how because he was already too old and so was his wife Sarah to bear a child. Not with God. Because with God all things are possible. He believed what God had said. And it wasn't until he was 99 years old that God said, Next year at this time, your wife Sarah shall bear a son. Well, it was too late, really, as far as Sarah was concerned, because she had already given Hagar, her maidservant, to Abraham to have an offspring through her that she could call her own to fulfill, as she was thinking, the promise of God by helping God out. Now, God said, No, Sarai... You will bear the son. And she did. Her name became Sarah as a result of her having done, although reluctantly, what God had commanded. All of those things Stephen had spoken of in the early portion of chapter 7. And the reason he was speaking of that is because he wanted to point out to them that even before the beginning of their nation God spoke to a man, and that man believed God. And that's important because what they were doing was not believing what God had said. They rejected so much of what the Word of God spoke with regard to the one who was to come. And unlike Abraham, they did not obey the command of God by believing what God had said. Then Stephen went on afterwards to talk about another great man in their history. This time, one of the sons of Jacob, whose name became Israel. Israel had twelve sons. Joseph was the one that he loved the most. He was the firstborn of Rachel. She only had Joseph and then Benjamin, and then she died. His other wife, Leah, and his concubines had the remainder of his twelve sons. But disregard that, that's, not, that's another story. But what I want to point out is that Joseph, because he was the firstborn of the woman who he truly loved, Leah was there, but Leah was not loved anywhere near as much as Rachel had been. Because of that great love, he set Joseph aside as someone that he dearly loved and made a point of letting the other eleven sons know. He made Joseph a coat of many colors. You may remember the story of Joseph where Joseph had dreams. The first dream, he told his brothers. The implication in that dream was that he was going to be ruling over all of them. They had already hated him with a great hatred. Now they hated him even more. But then the next dream he had, 
included the fact that not only would his brothers be under him, but also his father and his wives. That didn't go very well with Isaac, uh, Jacob, Israel. But later on in the story, we find that his brothers had had enough. And the moment they had opportunity to, they sold him into slavery for 30 pieces of silver. That's significant, too, because how many pieces of silver did Jesus get betrayed by? Well, you know, the rest of the story, Joseph was in Egypt, and he now becomes a ruler in Egypt through a series of miracles that God alone, in his time, enables Joseph to become that second to the Pharaoh. And there's a famine in the land. Joseph is in charge of distributing all of the remaining grain that they had stored for the previous seven years because of a dream that Joseph had had. And in Canaan, where the rest of his family were, the drought had become so great, and they had heard that there was grain in Egypt, they decided, we're going to go send some of you down to Egypt to get grain. Well, the story continues. When they arrived in Egypt, they did not recognize their brother Joseph, but he recognized them. Remember, in selling him as a slave, they rejected him as ruler over them, as he had promised through dream that that would take place. He believed it, but they did not. They rejected the promise that God had given through Joseph that they would serve him. And he's a type, a special picture, if you will, of Jesus Christ, because when Jesus came the first time, they rejected him. When he comes a second time, they will receive him. That's still yet to come. Well, his brothers did have to go back again a second time from Egypt, uh, rather from Canaan, because the, the famine was still going on. They came back the second time. And if you remember in the story, Joseph then revealed himself to them. And then, on that second return, they received him. They believed. Although fearful, they accepted the fact that he was indeed going to fulfill and had fulfilled that which he had spoken in that dream so long ago. So he is a beautiful illustration of our Lord being rejected the first time and then received when he comes back again. We covered those two in our previous studies in the book of Acts chapter 7, and now today we're going to be looking at another great man of God that Stephen recognizes and tells this group of men things they already knew but uses it to remind them of what they had neglected. So turn with me, Acts chapter 7, and we'll begin reading from verse 17. It's a rather lengthy section, but I want to get through this today so that we can understand that all the things that are happening today in Israel and all the things that we talked about that will be happening in the future are the result of what happened in the past. It's as God had intended. Read on with me in verse 17 of chapter 7 where it says, But when the time of the promise drew near, that promise is, by the way, the promise that God made to Abraham, that about 400 years from that time, 
that the people would be in a foreign land and then they would return to the land of Canaan. When the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. Now, at this time, Moses was born and he was well-pleasing to God. He was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Stop there for a moment. Let's quickly review what we've just looked at. Moses has been raised in an Egyptian home. The name Moses, by the way, is an Egyptian name. It's not a Hebrew name, but he is a Hebrew. And he was weaned, nursed, by his own mother. Another miraculous thing that took place in those early days of his life. He was saved from the death that was certain that Pharaoh had instructed the midwives to cast the newborn babies into the river if they were male. His wife couldn't allow that, so... She gave birth, and she quickly hid him, built basically a basket that would serve as a raft, and put him into the river Nile and left his fate to the Lord. That's what I call faith. As it turned out, she sent his sister Miriam to watch over the basket and what would happen. And you know the story. Pharaoh's daughter saw the basket in the reeds and saw that it was a young Hebrew baby. And she loved him. Immediately, she was so attracted to him. And again, I believe that's God's doing. And when she raised him as her own son, he was schooled in Egypt. And if you're thinking that Egypt was a backwards kind of country that they didn't really know very much, you haven't read your ancient history They were so, so very advanced in many, many different things. They had a great handle on chemistry. They had measured the distance fairly accurately to the sun. Think about the pyramids that they built. Think about the embalming. Think about the colors that are in those pyramids that have not lost their colors for all these many, many years. They were very, very intelligent, and they had a great lot of science behind them that perhaps exceeds even some of the science that we have today. The tolerance between some of the blocks in their buildings were so minute. How could they have done that? How could they have built such a system of buildings that were perfectly squared? They couldn't have had the technology to do the things that they did to build those pyramids, could they? Of course they did. Unless you believe it was aliens that helped them. Then, hey, that's just another story. We won't go down that path. But let me say this. They did have a great deal of knowledge. Do you know Egyptian linen is famous? Do you know why it's famous? Because 
Even in those days, there was nobody who could make linen cloth with so many threads per square inch. We still don't know how they did that. But you're familiar with threads per square inch and your linens that you might have. 600 threads per square inch is amazing, isn't it? Nice feel to it. You realize that theirs was around a thousand threads per square inch? How do they do that? What technology that they use to do such things? Well, that's what Moses was schooled in. He was very, very well educated. There are many Jewish writers who elaborate on that and kind of in excess remark on some of the various things that he accomplished. Even Josephus, the first century Jewish author, told some things about Moses' early days that are, well, is it really true that it happened that way? Questionable, maybe. Possible, perhaps. But anyway, as Stephen has said here, he was learned in all of the ways of the Egyptians. But yet he knew he was a Jew. And there came a time, Stephen says, at the age of 40. Now, we don't get that from the Old Testament Scriptures as far as the number of years. It just says that when he had come to maturity in the Old Testament Scriptures, in the book of Exodus, as Moses writes about himself. But the Jewish theologians of Stephen's day thought that the age of maturity would be the age at 40 years old. And so that's why Stephen is here agreeing with those authors of his present day. Whether or not he was truly 40 or not, it fits the story well because Stephen is breaking his life, Moses' life, into three 40-year periods. That first year, the first 40 years, was the time that he spent in Egypt. And he goes on and says, regarding that event that had just taken place, where he had killed an Egyptian for mistreating one of his fellow Jews. Verse 26 says, And the next day he appeared to two of them, the Jews, as they were fighting. And he tried to reconcile them, saying, Man, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And then at this saying, Moses realized that's not a secret. Pharaoh's going to find out. And that would mean that he would be sought after and killed. Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. By the way, the land of Midian is in what is today Saudi Arabia. It's well documented. As a matter of fact, Paul the Apostle speaks of that area, Mount Horeb, where Moses, as we'll see here in a few moments, saw God in a flaming bush that did not be, was not consumed. It was there on that mountain, Mount Horeb. It was in Midia, or Midian rather, and it was in that territory in Saudi Arabia, Arabia because Paul tells us so, that Horeb was indeed in Arabia. I say that because, well... In the time of Constantine, Constantine's mother was elected to pick out certain sites that were considered to be special sites of recognition. And one of those was Mount Sinai, but not in Arabia, as Paul says it was, but in that area between the two legs of the Red Sea, known as the Sinai Peninsula. And much of the church believes that that's where Mount Sinai is. In fact, there is a church built at that site. I think it's called 
uh, St. Catherine's, commemorating the fact that Moses received the law in the Sinai, in that desert area between the two legs of the Red Sea. But the Bible tells us that they crossed over the right-hand leg into Arabia, and it was there that they received the law on Mount Horeb, which is also called Sinai. So that's just for historic fact that needs to be perhaps put in one of your lower drawers of information. But I find it interesting. In any case, Stephen goes on in chapter 7, verse 29, and says, Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, it's the second 40 years, that would mean he was 80 years old at this time, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. Interesting, he says, the angel of the Lord. This angel of the Lord speaks in first person. As we've discussed in some of our Old Testament studies, this is a theophany. It is Christ Jesus speaking to him as the angel of the Lord, speaking as though he is God. And he said in verse 31, When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. So Moses thought at the age of 40 that he was their deliverer. He thought he was something because he was so well educated and Egyptian education was wonderful for certain things, but it wasn't at all useful to God for the deliverance of his people. So God set him into the desert area for 40 more years so he could learn how to become nothing. He thought he was something, he became nothing, and now God is going to use nothing for something that will bless the Lord and glorify his holy name. Verse 35 says, Then this Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out. And after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years, or 40 more years, remember the wilderness journeying, Moses could not enter the land of Canaan because of the thing that he had done near the end of his life. But God said that I will show it to you. But Joshua would lead the men, not Moses. Moses was very bothered by that, but that was what God had said and that was how it all worked out. The law cannot save. Moses represented the law. Joshua represents grace. His name in the Hebrew is Yeshua, which means Jehovah saves, or Jehovah is our salvation. It is the same name that in the Greek is Jesus, which is our English word Jesus. It means the same. Jesus Yahushua, Jesus. They're all pointing to the same, ultimately, individual. In this case, he's speaking of Joshua. That will be next. Because he brought them out, and in 40 years' time, they finally entered the land. 
But he continues on to say in verse 37, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now this is important important and very extremely important statement that Stephen is reminding them of what Moses had said. Moses prophesied that there is coming a day when another prophet, a prophet like him, would be one that they would listen to. He's pointing not to Joshua, but to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy that Moses had made. They would not accept it. And that's one of the major points here that Stephen is going to bring out. Stephen had been accused of blaspheming against Moses. He has done nothing other than defend Moses as the believer that God had used to bring the deliverance, but they rejected Moses. They rejected him. And then he came back, and under the power of God, arranged for the deliverance of his people, and they received Moses. But yet, all throughout their time in the wilderness, they fought tooth and nail against him. They didn't believe Moses, even after all those miracles. They rejected their God. They did not serve their God. And that's what Jesus, uh, uh, rather, Moses had tried to persuade them to understand that God was doing all of this. They would not listen. They rebelled. That's why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. It only takes 11 days to get from that place at Mount Sinai where they received the law to the land of Canaan. But they refused. He says in verse 38, This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts... They turned back to Egypt. Now, they didn't turn back physically, but they wanted to return in their hearts. Oh, that we could have the leeks and olives that we once had in the land of Egypt. Oh, that we could be able to go back to where we were instead of this manna that we have to eat every single day. God had been providing for them, but they didn't believe that he could continue to do so. They rejected him. They rejected Moses. And then they fell into a great sin. Verse 40 gives us the account. They turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Remember, Moses was on the mountain receiving the words of God. He was there for 40 days and nights. They didn't know where he'd gone or why he was gone for so long. They thought perhaps that he died up there and they wanted to have other gods, plural, to serve. Gods, plural, because that's what they were used to when they were in Egypt. The many, many gods of the Egyptians. They were willing to turn to those gods instead of the one god who was there before them at the mount. So they asked of Aaron to make them a calf. A golden calf. Make us gods to go before us. They said, make a calf. And so he did. They made a calf in those days, verse 41, offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. 
Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship. I will carry you away beyond Babylon. He's quoting from one of the prophets, the book of the prophets, it would be Amos. The book of the prophets, by the way, is the, the entirety of the twelve minor prophets. It was enclosed in one scroll. That's why they call it the book of the prophets. But in the midst of that book, you find the prophecy of Amos that he's quoting here. With very, very few uh, deviations from the wording, he's reminding them that they served other gods, even in the wilderness. They had no excuse. Verse 44 continues, Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Stephen is reminding them that a tabernacle was constructed in the wilderness. It was a tent. It was known as a tent of meeting. It was where God had said, I will meet with you. And he did. That tent traveled with them through those 40 years and was brought into the land of Canaan. Ultimately, it was set up in a place called Shiloh. Although it had been moved from there for a couple of occasions, it was primarily there in Shiloh until David, some 400 years later. And David decided he wanted to move that tabernacle, that tent, to Jerusalem where he had been reigning as king. His attempt first had failed miserably because a man died in the attempt to move the cart that was carrying the ark. But ultimately, the tent was set up in Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was there. But David wanted to build a real house. The prophet Nathan came to him and said, David, the Lord has said, you will not build that house because your hands are bloodied from war. But your son will build that house. But David was so desiring that a temple would be built, a building that would house this Ark of the Covenant and all of the implements that were used in the worship of God, that he saved up all of the resources that were necessary. In fact, God gave him the blueprint for that temple that was to be built, but God had said, you will not build it, your son will build it instead. And so it was that Solomon built it. And we're mindful of the fact that when Solomon dedicated that building, that wonderful building that was the wonderful Amazing building that was recognized in those days as a wonder among all of the other wonders of creation that were made by the hands of men. It was that, and only that, a building made by the hands of men. God never intended it to be the place where he would dwell. In fact, Solomon recognized that fact because in his prayer of dedication, he said, Lord, I know that you're not going to be dwelling in this house because there's nothing that can tame you on this earth that man can build. He knew that. But in Stephen's day, in Christ Jesus' day, they thought the temple was 
that which represents their God to the greatest extent. They worshipped not only in the temple, but they actually were worshipping the temple itself. The temple to them was holy. It was not. This building is a church building, yes. It's a building that houses the church, you and I. We are the church, not this four walls. But that's how they interpreted the temple having been built. And although Solomon's temple had been destroyed and another temple had been put in its place much smaller during the time of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, even after that, when a few years before Jesus was born, Herod, the king appointed by the nation of Rome, began to build that temple, that smaller version of Solomon's temple, into the grand building that they knew in Jesus' time. It had already been, by the time Jesus arrived, 40 years in the making, and they still weren't done in the construction of it. But Stephen is arguing here, that building is just a building. It is not to be worshipped. So I haven't, he says, blasphemed against the law. I haven't blasphemed against our wonderful servant Moses who led us through the wilderness. I'm not blaspheming against the temple. You are all misapplying what God has spoken. And that's why he says in verse 51, as we see in the overhead that you have before us, the accusation that he finally brings, this is the culmination of all that he has said. This history lesson wasn't really a history lesson. They all knew those things. It was to make them mindful of the fact that God had said, but you would not listen. And now he says, this is what is a result of your reluctance, your rejection of the God who has shown himself to you through his son Jesus. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Stick the knife in, turn it, and it is solidly in place. Stephen is making an accusation against them, not against the law, not against the temple, not against Moses, but against them. And all who would reject the word of God, whether they be leaders or followers. And that's where this teaching ultimately must land. Right here in this room. Among us. We need to make a decision. All of us. Individually. Collectively. Are we going to believe the Word of God? Are we going to act as though we trust in what He has said? Are we going to be the people of God that He wants us to be? Are we going to be obedient? Are we going to be faithful? Or are we going to begin to wonder, well, was this really meant for me? Did this really happen? Am I going down the right path? Is it worth serving Christ in these last days with what's going on in the world around me? Should I really be willing to risk my life Stephen gives an answer to that. And the answer is, yes and amen. That's exactly what he's expecting of us. If we should receive that kind of persecution that is happening all around the world, we should be prepared to even be willing to die for him. 
That's a tall story, a tall issue, command, expectation. Is it possible? Not in my strength. I'm just as much a wimp as everybody else in this room. I'm not willing to die except that the Spirit of God lives in me. And I know, based on His Word, that if I were ever to face that kind of a challenge of knowing that I'm about to die, would I be able to stand? Is God in me? Is the Holy Spirit helping me? Providing for my every need? Is the Holy Spirit giving me boldness to stand faithful even to that point of death? Go through Justin Martyr's book of the... I mean, Justin... Yeah. The Book of Martyrs. I've gotten the name of the author wrong. I'm sorry, but look it up. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Verse 54 says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed him with their teeth. Can you imagine how angry they must have been at hearing his accusations? You stiff-necked people. Oh, that did not go well with them. They were murderously angry at what he had just said, and he knew it. Verse 55, I love this verse. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, that's how we do what I say I cannot do. We do it by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who enables us to do it. He did it. He stood fast. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven. Now think about this. They're inside a building where they're meeting. There's a roof over their heads. Stephen looks up and doesn't see the roof over their heads. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Consider this. Do you think Stephen was scared when he saw that? Oh, that must have been such a wonderful experience for him. An affirmation from God. Hey, I'm with you. Jesus is standing there. And I think that the reason he is standing is because he's ready to get Stephen into his arms and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundations of the earth. He is receiving his first martyr into glory. Can you imagine that beautiful scene from his eyes, but from the eyes of all those around him? All they saw was a ceiling. One of those was named Saul of Tarsus. Let's keep that in mind, because that's central to the remainder of the story that is presented to us in the book of Acts. But here he says, he saw this wonderful vision, and he doesn't keep silent about it. He says in verse 56, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's powerful. They were angry at him before this. Now they're saying, blasphemy! It was all they needed. The murderous mob takes over from here. Verse 57 says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Just an incidental statement that Luke is making. But it's not just incidental. He says it for a purpose. Because he's leading us into the story of Saul. 
and the ministry that God would give to this man who hated Christians, who sought to kill Christians. In fact, it tells us here in verse 59, they stoned Stephen, and as he was calling on God, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So very similar to what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Yes. Christians are said to fall asleep for a reason. Because our bodies are what go into the grave. Our souls go to be with Jesus. That is the truth of the Word of God throughout the New Testament. We see that is what Paul declares and others. I say that because there are so many believers in what's known as soul sleep. It's not supported in the Scriptures. But I'm here to tell you that if we should face that kind of persecution where we actually lose our lives for the gospel's sake, I believe it will be just like Stephen's experience for us who have to go in that direction. And I believe also that when we die through natural causes or through any other means, our body goes into the grave if someone's around to bury us or in a crematory or whatever else is used, but our soul is to continue living because our souls are eternal. You got that? The soul never dies. Jesus himself said that. He who believes in me, yet though he dies, he will live. And if he dies before Christ's return, that's okay. You'll be with him. To be absent from the body, Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. See, understand what that says. That says, when you die, when I die, every one of us who believe in Christ are going to be face to face with our Savior in a minute, instant rather, after that last breath that we take in this body. And our bodies are not at all needed from that point on. except for the fact that there will come a day when those bodies will be raised up out of the graves or wherever else the ashes might have been strewn and He will present us before Himself with new bodies, glorified bodies. Those are the truths of the Word of God for us. Now, what's that to do with Israel? They're still a stiff-necked people. They are going through difficult times, even today. They will continue to experience difficult times in the days ahead. But the Word of God, and we talked about this three weeks ago, the Word of God tells us so very clearly that God's not through with His people. They are still His people. And as wonderful as the story is for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and know that we will be taken up to be with Him in the air someday, I believe very soon, for the people of Israel, He has a unique plan that He will restore His people. 
although they will have to go through a time of Jacob's trouble, a time that no man has ever seen nor ever will see again, a time that will result in many deaths among the people of God, there is a remnant that he has selected that he will have for himself. And then we all of us, both Jew and Gentile, will be one together in the kingdom of God. That's the promise that God is for all of us. So we're in an interim place. We're in the part of the story where God is going to be making a change. His focus is on the church today. The church is still here. His focus remains on us. We are the ones who are to proclaim the Word of God. We are the ones to shine the light, to be salt in the world. We are the ones that God has chosen to go into all the nations and tell them about Jesus. But it's coming a day when we'll be out of this place. And when we are gone, then He will turn His attention once again to His people. And those stiff-necked people whose hearts have been hardened, who have been uncircumcised in the flesh and in the heart, they at that time will look upon Him whom they have pierced when He returns in all His glory. And they will recognize He is the One, after all, that God had sent. They rejected Him. The first time they will receive him in those last days. So let's be faithful in the time that we have remaining on this earth, people. We have a great responsibility. Is it not so? Are we afraid? Are we concerned that maybe we might not be able to stand in those difficult times? Trust in the Lord. Believe that his Holy Spirit is indeed in you if you have received him as your Lord and Savior, and he will indeed, just as he did with Stephen, give you and me the power, the ability to stand firm in our faith. Oh, God, help us to recognize this truth and help us to apply it in our daily living. And we ask it, God, in Jesus' holy name. Amen.